Welcome to Long Now, a podcast exploring the many threads of long-term thinking. I'm Justin Oliphant, video director here at the Long Now Foundation. Our work at Long Now has a lot to do with memory and its uses. Memory and the ways we can pass it down from generation to generation is a vital part of cultivating long-term thinking. Many of the longest-lived traditions we have are preserved through links of cultural memory stretching back centuries or even millennia, but memory can also be used for more nefarious purposes. This talk from historian Abby Smith Rumsey is all about how people, and especially political leaders, take liberty with memory and history. Smith Rumsey has worked with the Library of Congress and the National Science Foundation, taught at Harvard and Johns Hopkins University, and she's currently the board chair at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Her work focuses on the creation, preservation, and active use of the cultural record, or in essence, our memory on a societal scale. After she tells us about her research into how nostalgia and memory can be manipulated, she'll be joined in conversation with Rick Prelinger, an archivist, a filmmaker, and also a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Prelinger has worked for decades to make vast wells of archival material available for viewing, home videos, educational films, and more. Together, they discuss how we can use our archives and our memories to preserve shared reality in the face of those who want to manipulate our collective memory. But before we jump in, I want to note, all of the Long Now Foundation support comes from our donors and members. If you're already a member, thank you. You make this all possible. If not, please consider going to longnow.org join and becoming the newest member of Long Now. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Now, without further ado, here's Abby Smith-Rumsey with Hijacked Histories, Polarized Futures. <laughs> Thank you very much. I want to welcome you all. Um, I'm so happy to be here at Long Now. Tonight, we're going to have a conversation about the past and the future, and I want to ask the question, which one comes first? Does the future really arise from the past? Or is it more true to say that what we think of as a past arises from how we imagine the future? I don't think it's a very easy question to answer, although it may seem that way. And I'm telling you, we're not going to be talking about quantum theory, but we are talking about the ways that people conceive of how people feel the passage of time, especially in times of crisis, which this is, and how controlling images of the past can be manipulated to control people's future. What will this particular moment look like in retrospect in 40 or 50 years? What do we know about this moment which will be totally inaccessible to people in the future? And what do people in the future know that we cannot know? I think the answer to that is pretty simple. They know how this will all turn out. I just want you to be aware that one of the great flaws about talking about the past is that it seems all too obvious that things turned out the way they had to turn out. However, if we were to look back at this moment in 50 years and, and see how it turned out, we might well be completely shocked at how it turned out. So I want to keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that nobody in the past had any more certainty about how things were going to go than we do in the present. So I say let's have compassion for people in the past 
that, for example, they didn't, all the wonderful, they didn't know all the wonderful things and behave in the virtuous ways that we now do. I talk about this crisis because it's really an identity crisis for this country. Acute polarization that we suffer from now is a symptom, but it's not the cause of this crisis. It's really an identity crisis, and I don't mean this in the angsty teenage sense, and I don't mean identity politics either. I mean in the most fundamental sense, we cannot agree on who we are. We don't really know who we are. So whose America are we really talking about making great again? And when was that time when the country was truly great? I think we all have a different opinion about that. And some think that it never has been great, not their America in any, in any event. You know, this political slogan evokes something that historians are very familiar with, which we refer to as a nostalgia of utopia or utopian nostalgia. That is a longing for a past that probably never really existed, but holds a very strong grip on our imagination. This political slogan evokes some, some time that was really great, and it was born of a fear of the future. And I can see why people are afraid of the future. But the slogan itself allows people to imagine things that they wouldn't otherwise. It gives them sanction to imagine that there really was a time that was great. I should say, in the interest of fairness, that Obama's slogan was equally provocative and hopeful. His slogan, Yes We Can, also was talking about a future that many people were afraid of and meant to give confidence. But you can bet that it is not the same future that people have in mind. So to paraphrase the talking heads, how did we get here? It's almost instinctive that when we end up in a place we didn't expect, such as this place, we have to look in the rearview mirror to figure out where we took the wrong turn. Today, when we search the past for answers, unfortunately, we stumble into the bramble butch of the history wars. As a nation, we simply cannot sort out what our past is. Did we originate in 1776, which was the beginning of the great experiment in democratic self-governments? Or did the present-day America originate in 1619, when prosperity today has been bought, we realize, at the expense of other people's land, other people's labor, and other people's freedom? I would argue that both versions of this get it completely wrong and fall into the fallacy of origins, the mistaken notion that our origins determine our ends. That is what we call history as prophecy. History is not prophecy. The Trump merch, this MAGA red hat, signals not a set of ideological beliefs, but loyalty to a man and membership in the warm embrace of a tribe. Such behavior is mirrored equally on the left, to be frank, which has its own slogans, its own merch, its own tribal behaviors, which is often called virtue signaling. This polarization has led to a bizarre loss of touch with reality. The last time I was, saw such departure from reality, or to put it kindly, departure from a shared sense of reality, was in 1983. I want to note that all maps are courtesy of the David Rumsey Map Collection. I was living in a dormitory, and my roommate was from the closed military city of Vladivostok, which you can see here, 11 time zones away from Leningrad and Moscow. The first departure from reality that was that Vladivostok was kept officially on Moscow time, not local time. 
She came back one day from a trip to the market, a trip that took her hours, incidentally, with a prize purchase, and that was a kilo of butter. Butter was a scarce commodity, even in the well-provisioned cities such as Leningrad, Moscow, and Vladivostok. She beamed with the pride of someone who had just won the lottery, and frankly, she had every right to gloat. She asked me how often butter was available in our markets. I answered, always. The word always was so far from what she could even imagine that she had to take a beat. Then pulling herself up in all of her dignified skepticism, she said in a tone somewhere between pity and condescension that she understood that naturally I was a patriot and I had to defend my motherland, but I did not need to lie. When I protested that I wasn't lying, she grew indignant. I had just confirmed to her everything she had ever heard about capitalists. So what I took away from that year in Moscow and Leningrad was less about the subject I was studying and more my knowledge that, in fact, those who control a population's sense of reality or their imagination really controls them totally. It, they control what they can imagine, what is possible and what is not possible in the world. For that woman, more than a kilo of butter in the market every single day was simply not a possibility that was earthly at, at all. My experience means, and I take it with me almost every day, is that I look at the present situation from an oblique angle, the better to see what's going on in this country within a different light. So in 2016, I first learned about alternate facts. I was alarmed. What had happened? Trump ran in 2000. He talked about running in 2004. He campaigned without declaring officially in 2012. How many people predicted that he was going to live, uh, sorry, live, um, sorry, <laughs> win in 2016? I mean, he told those same outrageous lies all the time, although they got more robust over the ages. What I was really shocked by was the eagerness with which our fellow citizens, and they are our, our fellow citizens, believed them to be true, or wanted them to be true, or frankly just needed them to be true. Why is that? Well, we'll get to this, but first I want to show you the kinds of everyday hijacking of history that the Soviets did, which may be instructive. On the extreme right is Nikolai Yezhov, the man who ran the NKVD, which was this, uh, the predecessor of the KGB. He was the man responsible for conducting infamous purges of the 1930s. Oops, he fell victim to the purges himself. So, after he fell victim to the purges, there was a new version of the future, it was a future in which Zhezov was not Stalin's trusted comrade and frankly had never been. I want to tell you that falsifying evidence is as old as evidence itself. So here today, gone tomorrow. Am I saying to you that we are at risk of doing something like this in this country? I mean, personally, I wouldn't have thought that this brazen manipulation of facts was possible. Because after all, we live in the land of freedom of expression and the press. We're all forward motion. Civic education from the early 19th century, which is when this timeline was done by the great female educator, Emma Willard, inculcated in us as citizens that we were leaders in the virtues of freedom and equality. At this point, Americans were busy defining who they were and where they fit into the world. This map told them that they could look back and see that their own place in history was extremely short and abbreviated, and they wanted to become, therefore, the vanguard of the future. 
but so did these men want to become the vanguard of the future. Here you see Lenin and Trotsky in 1920 in Moscow. Marx and Engels said in the Communist Manifesto, like us, in communist society, the present dominates the past. And I'd say in truth, it is the past that more or less determines the present, but in our society, it is always the present that determines the past. The Russians took certain liberties with history to bring it into alignment with, with Marxist theory. And here you can see that when Trotsky was expelled from the party in 1927, he also was lost to history, or at least he became an alternate history. Even before Photoshop was invented, it was always easy to bring the past into alignment with the present. You know, I'm sure many of you have heard the joke that Soviets, and I think the Russians probably still tell, which is the future is certain, it's the past that's always changing. The business of revising history is very active these days, and not just in Russia, not just in China, but also in this country as well. I want to share something with you from the memoirs of this spectacular woman, Nadezhda Mandelstam. Here she was in 1922 when she was 23 years old and married to the poet Osip Mandelstam, who would perish in the gulag shortly after this time. She happened to be staying in the family of the family home of Viktor Shklovsky, who many of you may know as the great Russian literary critic. Here she's describing Shklovsky's teenage daughter, Varya, and here I'm quoting from the memoirs. She showed us her school textbooks, where the portraits of party leaders had thick pieces of paper pasted over them, as one by one they fell into disgrace. This the children had to do on instructions from their teacher. Varya said how much she would like to cover up Commissar Nikolai Simashka. I mean, after all, we're going to have to sooner or later. Why not now? But she had to wait for instructions. At the same time, the editors of encyclopedias and reference works were sending subscribers. Most such works were actually sold through subscription at that time. A list of articles that had to be pasted over or cut out. With every new arrest, people went through their books and burned the books of disgraced leaders in their stoves winter heating. In the new apartments, which had central heating instead of stoves, forbidden books, personal diaries, correspondence, and other so-called subversive literature had to be cut into tiny little pieces with scissors and thrown down the toilet. As she said, people were kept very busy. And this will explain Soviet plumbing to you. So I say props to the teenage girl who had a sense of humor about it. That said, she was helpless to do anything except cultivate a sense of humor about it. You know, memory is a remarkable thing, and the way it can be manipulated for good and for ill is quite remarkable because of its inherent flexibility. What you see here is a cell from the hippocampus, which is the main organ of memory in the human mind, actually in all organs' minds. Thankfully, our nervous system is designed to be flexible so that it can learn about the world and modify its understanding of the world. You see, all the time we're learning, we have a little model of the world in our brains which actually predicts what we're going to see so that when something is different, we notice it right away. It's a very efficient system of staying alert to threats. And so brain scientists these days actually refer to the brain as a prediction machine. But that also means that the brain, to be efficient, has to throw away a lot of information it judges to be irrelevant and unimportant. And thus, I say that for a good memory, forgetting is a feature, it's not a bug. In short, memory is the raw material of ourselves as individuals and as members of society. It comprises our identity. In effect, to hijack history 
is tantamount to identity theft, and it is, to my mind, a political crime, whoever commits it. You know, it's remarkable, but Nadezhda Mandelstam lived well into her 80s. Here she's seen, she's 80 years old, still as fetching as ever, and still smoking cigarettes. I don't know what her magic was, except this, that she was determined to survive. She was determined to survive, remember, and write down everything. Not just her husband's poetry, which couldn't be written down in her lifetime, but also everything and to teach us lessons to the extent that she could, although she wasn't very optimistic about anybody learning anything from history. Let me just again quote from her memoirs, which I think is really touching for us these days. The capacity of memory, both collective and individual, to gloss over, to improve on, or distort the facts is particularly evident at periods when the foundations of society are collapsing. These disorders to which memory is prey, the tendency to embellish or suppress awkward detail, the need to vindicate oneself, show how dangerous it is to rely on one's own conviction of being right, since this is all too often based on false criteria. Our main task is instead to find true criteria. There's also the problem that while distorting our recollections and thus hindering a proper appreciation of individual or historical experience, Memory is at the very core of our humanity. It is all that we have. Mandelstam, incidentally, survived because she was a woman. Women were not recognized as political agents in the Soviet Union, and I dare say perhaps in Russia as well, and certainly in most parts of the world. Women could be used as weapons against men, as emotional blackmail, but they had no agency. So, a little confession. This is not a portrait of Nadezhda Mandelstam, of course. It is a painting by the great painter Kazimir Maldievich, who I think properly depicts what this kind of world looked like, that there were people who were made as great prototypes, in this case, a woman farmer, but featureless. She was just part of a mass and absolutely featureless because, in fact, she had no memory. As Mandelstam says, the first task is to recovery memory in all of its complexity, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. And to do that, we must start with the facts of the case. Those are often very hard to find, even in libraries and archives and museums, especially if archives and museums are collected in such a way to slant information, to record only that part of history that we like, that we agree with, or we think is going to be indictment of our enemy. It's very easy to plant information to be read later in a way that's distorted. So a special plea to libraries and archives, which, as you know, are just critical in this moment. You know, I can't go into all the complexities of why and how the Russian state has decided to close its memory, to outlaw its civilian cadre of um, historians, and to close the archives to most people. But a major undertaking of Putin's regime is to rebuild the Russian state as a state that transcends history in many ways or is old and sacred. He does this through the aggressive rewriting of history texts. You can see this happening in China as well. It's happening in the United States on both the left and the right. But I think that we need to go far deeper than just getting the facts of the case correct or making sure that our history textbooks align with the facts. I think we have to move beyond the model of history as the march of progress. I think that's the main reason we were so unwilling or unable to cope with a cascade of catastrophes that we experienced in the last three decades. So what's happened to us in the last three decades? 
Well, there was Y2K, which we kind of skated past. Then there was 9-11, which few people seemed to anticipate, including our security agents. Then there was a 2008 financial crisis, which was staring us in the face, but nobody seemed to see. Then we were kind of relieved when Obama was elected, and then shocked that Trump was, was following him. Then there was COVID-19. Then there was January 6th. And then there was Ukraine. And unfortunately, this weekend, we have the Middle East. More slaughter, more senseless death. And the reason that Americans have been caught back-footed so many times psychologically is because we're simply not prepared to know how to deal with catastrophes like this if everything is all forward motion. I'll note that we face this dilemma over and over again in our history, and apparently we don't recognize how familiar that is. I'm thinking in particular now about the innovation of artificial intelligence, the promise and the threat. Before that, there was the promise and the threat of social media, which we're still behind dealing with. And before that, there was the promise and the threat of the internet itself. Still hard to catch up with that. And some of us remember the promise and the threat of TV, which seems to have abated only because TV itself has fallen by the wayside due to other media. There seems to be a reflex in the American psyche that if we hand people the most appropriate and up-to-date tools, that they will always bring the, out the very best in people and only that. So why do we so tenaciously cling to our belief in our own innocence? This is a point that was made very well by one of the fellows, former fellows at CASBIS, Jennifer Richardson, who wrote a wonderful essay in the Atlantic Monthly about why it is that Americans, particularly white Americans, are surprised every time there's a seeming setback in the racial progress. In fact, it depends upon your point of view. We actually need to believe that in order that we can move on. But it's not, in fact, true. We can't just be you know, free riders on progress. You know, as one true believer in progress said, it's difficult to predict the extent of self-government that the man of the future may reach or the heights to which he may carry his technique. Social construction and psychophysical self-education will become you know, two aspects of one and the same process. All the arts, literature, drama, painting, music, and architecture, all will lend this precious, beautiful form. Man will become immeasurably stronger, wiser, and subtler. His body will become more harmonized, his movements more rhythmic, and his voice more musical. So does anyone recognize this voice? It was the voice of Trotsky. In case you didn't realize it, that Marxism springs from the exact same belief in the almost limitless perfectibility of humans, endowed as we are with reason, cultivated through education, and the ultimate product of which is technological, that is, material progress. Marx believed in the ultimate liberation of humankind from the constraints of nature. The Bolsheviks simply wanted to speed up the process, but it's not a dream that is unknown in this country as well. So if we don't believe in this march of progress, because we believe in deep time now, it's still all upwards and forward motion. You know, we still believe that it's all progress. We have very different views of human nature now than did the founders of our republic or, or Marx and Engels. The pillars of their enlightened vision of self-government was reason. We have to accept the cognitive science, not to mention Darwinian evidence, throws shade on just how objective human rationality can be. Scholars such as Daniel Kahneman, 
also a CASBIS fellow, and Amos Tversky have shown that reason is often just a post hoc justification for decisions we make through older, non-rational parts of our brain, the ones that really are geared for our survival, that are tied into our emotional instincts and to our amygdala. Furthermore, enlightenment views of the compatibility of liberty and equality, I can't say have held up all that well in a nation as diverse, not to mention polarized, as ours. We have just to look at the Supreme Court's docket to see that one person's liberty can become an impingement on someone else's. I urge all of us who think that democracy is worth saving and fighting for to think about the need to reinvent it for the contemporary world. We can't just rely on old views of human nature and old views of how history unwinds itself. So how exactly should we be doing long-term thinking now? First, I know that we need to acknowledge the past without believing that it is a tale of destiny. We cannot conflate the past with the future. History is not prophetic, nor is history a moving sidewalk. We don't just step on time and it moves along. Whether we hurry along or not, it will end up taking us forward in, in progress. I will say that the past is critically important as a point of departure but probably nothing else. It doesn't foretell the future. It is the place from which we begin. The rest is a matter of contingency and chance. And if this map, even though it was done in 1849, 10 years before the origin of the species was published, if this map doesn't foretell just how complicated and fortuitous history can be, then how many strands are intertwined and how, say, someone can come along in one line, the thin line at the top is that goes all the way across is Alexander the Great, glorious, conquered much territory, but didn't last long. And the Roman Empire, which had many tributaries, which have died out and sometimes gone into very interesting rivulets in strange places. We're presented, therefore, with endless choices to be made without fully understanding any of their consequences. And the faster we feel the, the pace of time, the more urgent we feel the need to make decisions without considering the consequences. And again, I urge that now, particularly at this moment, we step back and not just reach for ready solutions to the problems that we face, and certainly not reach for comfort when there is little comfort to be had except through, well, assuring ourselves of things that we can assure ourselves about. So this is why my message really is that in the absence of this certainty, the one thing that we need to be crystal clear about is the moral foundations of our decision. And that's not very easy. So what do we do with history? What do we do with the past? Socrates reputedly said that an unexamined life is not worth living. I don't know. I mean, I know plenty of people who don't examine their lives and seem to be very happy. <laughs> but, I, but I will say categorically that the unexamined past is dangerous. So what are we supposed to do with the statues of, say, Confederate generals and other public art that reflects views that we now hold to be anathema? Are we supposed to just destroy them, destroy evidence they existed? Should we take a hint from the Russians who have actually rounded up some of these statues and made a park out of them? The Russians love parks. And this is outside of Moscow, and there's evidence of the past, there's also evidence of revulsion against that past. You'll notice that Stalin is missing his big nose. You know, the defamed statues, the defaced statues are here. So people can see both what was believed and also how people refuse to believe it. You know, I talk about knowing the truth, but how are we supposed to really know the truth if, as Mandelstam says, we should always question whether we are right or not? 
How can we even talk about what we think is real when nowadays reality is kind of all triggers all the way down? I suggest that we keep in mind the words of this man, Chadaev, who had the distinction of being the first Russian to be called insane because of his political views. Hence the name of his um, last missive, the Apologia of a Madman. He said that love of the fatherland is certainly a very beautiful thing, but there is something better than that. It is the love of truth. So how do we know the truth? Well, we test it. We test it by talking to people that we completely disagree with. Here, some of you may recognize this debate that was held in 65 between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. You can see how old it is. You, could, you should definitely look at it if you haven't seen it. It's available on YouTube in all of its grainy glory. It's spectacular. In fact, it's harrowing, especially from this perspective. So just as there is tension, as I say, between freedom and equality, there's also tension between the production of truth and the production of national identity. This is inevitable in a country like ours, and it should be. Frankly, to me, the fact that we're fighting over history is a very good thing. There are plenty of countries in which we are not allowed to fight about history. This, to me, is what democracy looks like. This is outside the Supreme Court after the Dobbs decision. You'll see women of about the same age, some of whom are elated and some of whom are in despair. I think it is a category mistake to see the Dobbs decision as a step backwards because history doesn't move backwards. It only moves forward or it moves along. Just as it is a mistake to see that Trump's election was regression, it actually was just the next stage in an ongoing struggle we have. We didn't solve the problem of racism by electing a black man. Sending the decision about how to adjudicate the rights of the born and the rights of the unborn back to the states is, again, the next stage of engagement. It's another chance for us to work out the differences in a way that we have not been able to as long as we were fighting about a Roe v. Wade. So because I really want to be able to talk with you and hear your questions and talk with Rick, my Grand Inquisitor. Let me close on this note. No, no, I, I love the Grand Inquisitor. He's one of my favorite characters in fiction. Um, let me close by saying that long-term thinking requires radically new temporal framing, not a march of progress, not the end of history. You know, we live in interesting times. We don't know how things will turn out. But pay attention, because if we don't pay attention and if we don't participate, other people will decide for us. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. I'd actually like to talk a little bit about the truth to begin. You state in the book that civil society and civility itself begins and ends with a shared acknowledgement of the truth. That sounds pretty idealistic now, doesn't it? And earlier in the book you state, and I love this quote, uh, historical truth is antithetical to narrative satisfaction. This runs counter to the incessantly repeated cliches about storytelling, where we hear that stories make us human and that narratives help us create uh, patterns and meaning. You're not saying that. You're saying that narrative satisfaction takes us away from truth. Where does storytelling take the wrong fork? Where do good stories end and bad ones begin? Well, I will say that if you tell history as a, as a narrative, 
you have to adhere to the rules that Frank Kermode mentioned in one of his books, which is a narrative to be satisfying, has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that the end has to harmonize with the beginning. You can mess up the middle as much as you want. And again, I don't think there are endings in history. I think everything keeps moving forward, and I think the most productive way of, of thinking about it, one which actually li is liberating, is that what happened in the past is a place of departure. It is not the end. I do think that as people are claiming space for their own identity in nowadays, they mistakenly refer to my story, telling my story. And that means, to me, it connotes that one can shade some of the things that don't fit in with the narrative. And I always object to the roughing out of the bad details or the good details. I mean, I think history is full of the good, the bad, ugly, and the beautiful. So you have to get all of it or it isn't realistic. I think that in terms of fiction, you can, you know, it really helps to have a narrative and that narratives can tell truths through fiction that are as profound as history, but they're not to be mistaken for each other. I also find it interesting, Rick, and maybe you do too, that in the 20th century, certainly in the modern era after the catastrophe of the First World War, there was a rejection by most artists of the idea of a narrative that could make sense of anything. In fact, they wrote in an anti-narrative way because the world had ceased to make any sense. That was their way of telling the truth. So it's interesting to me now that storytelling has been revived. Mm, I'm not sure that it's appropriate in every case, and I think history's not a case where we should be telling stories. Yeah, and we're seeing a bit of a backlash. There was a great piece by Perl Siegel uh, in The New Yorker yeah. um, against sort of the tyranny of narrative. And I noticed today in The New York Times reviewing the, the films at the New York Film Festival that what that writer found uh, remarkable is that the, the films were letting narrative go and focusing on experience. But again, experience is, is complicated too. Um, I... I've never been called a grand inquisitor, but um, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I I I feel like I have a new job. Well, he was the one who got the truth out of Ivan Karamazov. So yeah. yeah. Um, so look, uh, what I really am is a, is an uncredentialed archivist, and you are a historian uh, who, for much of your career, has worked with libraries and archives. Mm -hmm. How have memory institutions taken broadly? served the cause of maintaining and preserving collective memory? And how have they fallen short? How should memory institutions adjust in this time of, of what you call source amnesia and the spread of disinformation? Yeah, well, I do find it interesting that many librarians and archivists think that, um, that their personal judgment about the nature of truth and history affects their collecting when I've always understood, at least from an historian's point of view, I want archives and libraries to be full of authentic evidence. Um, and I can't imagine a world in which an historian would make sense of the, of, you know, the past if there were only one flavor of things. I mean, I think one of the things that people are noticing and making actually a big deal about is that the archives that are created by the people in power um, actually have these, what are called these absences. And so we need to fill them in. Well, it seems to me that if people collect according to the political preferences they have, 
which I can see in certain libraries, then they're creating their own absences. And I don't really understand how they can justify that. I understand why, but I just think it doesn't serve the profession. Let me just give you an example. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, there was a brief period of time when Yeltsin decided that he was going to open up the archives. It was a way of discrediting his predecessors, communist predecessors, including Gorbachev. And so for a brief moment of time, the Communist Party archive was opened, for example. And when I was working at the Library of Congress, the librarian of Congress, Jim Billington, persuaded the, um, Yeltsin to open an exhibition of those materials in Washington, and then they would go to Moscow where, where there would be on display. It included Stalin's party card, but it also included, and this I give verbatim in the book, a really atrocious um, directive by Lenin in 1920 to go out and, and so round up a couple of hundred people and hang them high, basically, as an example. And it's the most disgusting kind of language. Um, and, uh, and yet it was in the archives. It was in the party archives. So I was talking to the Russian archivist saying, it's remarkable that all this stuff was kept. She said, we kept everything. And I said, how did you feel about that? And she said, well, first of all, it was our job. And second of all, I always hoped this day would come. And that really moved me. And that's actually, I mean, after that incident with my with my roommate and several other people like that in Russia, I thought that it was one thing to be an historian, but there, but at least one person in the profession should actually be caring about the way that the source base is made. And that's why I dedicated my life to spending so much time with libraries and archives. And yet, you know, people often ask me, uh, aren't you worried about all these films that are getting lost? Aren't you worried about everything that we can't save? And I say, while we shouldn't intentionally destroy things, that loss is actually formative. Loss, uh, a perceived loss of history, suppression, censorship, destruction of knowledge leads to the new histories that have emerged, has led to the new histories that have emerged in the last 40 or 50 years. Loss can be formative in the same way that archival absences can speak louder or as loudly as presences. True, very um, true. Yeah. The, the gaps on the shelves tell their own story. And I, I kind of haven't worked that through with regard to some of the things you say in your book, but I'd, I'd like to. Suppressed histories. Uh, you know, I have a, the U.S. moved towards a racial reckoning in 2020, or at the very least it gestured in that direction. Suppressed histories moved closer to the foreground. There was a moment where it seemed that in the in the conventional press that we were seeing some sophisticated discussions about race as a discourse and as a system of power. But we're now seeing a disturbing reaction on many levels. Um, you suggest a shared sense of reality based on the real. As a nation, are we capable of that? Are we capable of confronting our history and accepting or moving towards a shared sense of reality? Oh, yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think that we need to commit to it, but I do think that, well, we have to, but I do think that we're capable of it. Of course we're capable of it. I don't think there's, now here I'm going out on a limb, but I don't think that there's been an appropriate call to leadership. I think the people who enter public life now are, are the ones who 
uh, want to disrupt, they want attention. And I think the whole, the whole notion of public service, except in some areas, has been widely discredited. And that's what I think is the real shame. That and, of course, what all of us probably agree on, which is we need better education for people, you know, grades 1 through 12, to teach people how the government works. It's no surprise that people of a certain under a certain age, you know, that have never seen Congress pass a budget, for example, um, all 12 bills, um, or seen people working across the aisle, have, they have no reason to think the government can accomplish something. So why would they go into public service? And I mean specifically the government. But I, I think that we can turn that around. We certainly have in the past. And it's my ardent hope that we can. I also think that there's, I'm not deterministic, but... Um, there is something about the demography which is going to settle a lot of issues for us. I think myself and some people in the room will not see that, will, li will not live to see it, but we'll be gone and more people of mixed race will come into being in this country and that will seem normal to them and they will find other things to disagree about. I mean, as a professor at Santa Cruz, I've seen the future of California and it is bright. Uh, there's no question about that. Look, I have, I have one more question for you, and then we can, we can open it up. Um, this is a terrible time to lose our collective memory, preserving liberty, equality, and democracy, and protecting all of us from universal threats like anthropogenic climate change and maybe nuclear proliferation. These require us to act mindfully and quickly. Where should we begin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does, doesn't this room call for, call for big ideas? Yeah, I was going to say you first. No, but um, okay. Well, actually, this is—it's um, a big idea. It's not going to be easy to um, address. But I honestly think that the biggest problem um, in our civic life, in our public life, is the role of money, and too much money, and it's in infected politics. I mean, you know, we could talk about income inequality. I think that's a reflection of the way that we have distorted the role of money in this country. My understanding of American history, and I'm not an American historian, is that the founders wanted to put into place financial incentives because they were so much against the royalty and the aristocrats and the church. So copyright was, not, was something that was to counter the monopoly of um, the church and um, you know, royalty for, over publishing. So, you know, money kind of inadvertently started to become this lingua franca, and I think that since we don't seem to have an appropriate amount of shame about accumulating vast amounts of money anymore, that seemed to have gone by the way, um, that it's really hard to regulate. I also know that you can make a lot of money in this country without going into the most important professions such as nurses, firemen, teachers, you know, state senators, that kind of thing. You know, those are, those are, those are loser professions in, in some people's measurement. And it's just, how can people think of that? So, I mean, I don't know how we're going to change that attitude, but I think that that's, if we get at that, then I think it's going to begin to solve or at least unwind a lot of the tightly wound things. But it's a Gordian knot, and I don't know how to cut through it. I don't have that sword. Your book is an excellent start. And, Thank you. Uh, and I commend it to all of you. Um, I'd love to open it up for uh, questions. Um, yes, you have the mic. I have Please. a mic. Is it on? There we go. Uh, so my question is about um, staying present or the importance of presence as we go through time. Harkening on your last question, I've been living through, we've all been living through, 
predictions about 2050 and climate change, and we're now halfway there since paying attention to at least for me since 2000. So you know our our, our presence in time as we go forward through things we're predicting or seeing in the past is uh, you know an experience we have in life. So I, I wanted you to expand a little bit on this this how do we ride paying attention to the present as a as something you brought up that was important, and how does that evolve over time as we live through our lives and, and watch things unfold? Well, the present means something very different for you know a six-year-old than it does for someone who's 60. And what I really mean is that instead of thinking that somehow we're going to solve this problem in the future, that hasn't gotten us very far. Um, and so, and I want to impress that Every day, whether we know it or not, we're making decisions that affect not just our future, our present and future, but other people's as well. So I think to the extent that you can widen um, you know, your, foc your focus and see um, how your actions can ramify, then I think that staying in the present is a pretty good thing. The future, it seems, is always being foreshortened. And as you go through life, um, it seems to actually to get further and further away. It's paradoxical. Um, and I also think that there's way too much emphasis on, in our consumer society on replacing things, not investing in things that, um, that last for a long time, as it was in the old days. Um, and also that we, we pay too much attention, give too much credence to this cry that, oh, time is collapsing, time is faster and faster. Oh, we're losing our attention span. No, we're not losing our attention span. It hasn't changed at all. There's a lot more competing for it. And I don't think we've yet learned how to filter and control the things that are competing for our attention. But I think that's a, unintent a natural side effect of all new media. I mean, if you can go back and read the stuff that was read about, written about printing, you know, it's just, it's, it'll make you cry with laughter. It's so funny. So, and their lives were a lot shorter than ours. Um, that also, changes the perspective a lot. I can't, I, mean, I can't possibly speak to the issue of why we haven't done enough about climate change, but that's not what this talk is about. Uh, thank you, yes. I, I really appreciated how you talked about um, yearning for pushing past grand narratives and wanting to get into the complexity and the richness of history. Uh, could you maybe spend some more time on that, perhaps illuminating some examples where not researchers and academics, but like the general population, like at a national level, actually engaged with events or history, like in that complex richness that we're seeking? Well, I'm not sure what you're looking for, RJ, but I will say that anyone who reads a really good biography will begin to understand the complexity of a single life. If it's a good biography, um, you'll be able to understand all the things that, all this, the situation that a person is born into is sort of given, um, the constraints of their, you know, their gender, their family, um, I mean, the time period they live in. I mean, I often think about what it would have been like as a woman to be born even 100 years before. It's kind of unimaginable. I don't like thinking about it. Um, but... Um, but I do think that biography is the, clear, the clearest representation of complexity in history. And it's all in one, it's in one book, and it's in a person who is made to be, in, who is intrinsically interesting, and a good biographer will, will reveal why it is intrinsically interesting. It doesn't have to be a great person. 
It could be, you know, um, there are some wonderful biographies of women in 17th century New England based on their own diaries. So you, it can be a humble life, but it can show you, well, it can really tell you how complicated things can be. I think public history, the practice of public history and community history also can, uh, can help uh, very sophisticated engagement with historical thinking. There, there were some... There's a question here. There's a question here and there's a question there. Um, so you talked a bit about like gaps and gaps in a history where things are just missing. But one thing I've noticed um, is there's also gaps where we don't know how to interpret things perfectly or less perfectly. Some of this is literally just language. That's the easy example. We don't know the language. But sometimes it's, even for stuff like just as recent as like 100 years ago, we might not know the slang. We might not know the reference. People, when, write, when, people when, are, when they're writing stuff down, they assume so much context. Um, and as a historian who spends a lot of time with work done by archivists, what is the kind of, how do you think we can be better at this for future, for the future? Better at representing the context, do you mean? Better at, um, represent, better at including context with the material so that it may be interpreted from someone coming from so far in the future that this context may have deteriorated entirely. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry to say that you actually can't. Um, one of the things that, I mean, you can write a history book which has a lot of context. It will be very long, but it will be wonderful. Um, but, you know, I have to say as someone who studied medieval Russian history, you know, there's learning the language, there's learning about all the sources that were around, there's trying to get at the fact that they didn't write about anything but liturgical and court affairs. You know, you can become conversant in a culture and look at the gaps and be able to interpret, interpolate certain things, but never with any certainty. So there's a lot of sort of theorizing or a lot of, I should say, hypothesizing. Um, but the past is really gone. And what's left is what's left. I have to say the greatest boon to history um, in the past, I'd say, 50 years is the advance in material science. The fact that there's so much about inert material um, entities, you know, soil and things like that, they can tell us so much about the context in which Stone Age people lived, for example. I mean, you can pick up any journal, um, any issue of science or nature, and you'll see some breakthrough. They've been able to analyze the DNA of certain soil and see where the, you know, where the ruminants were, and in fact, find a little smidge of DNA from somebody in, in Asia, but actually this is in Scotland. How do they ever get there? So, I mean, in that sense, it's constantly expanding. But it's at a scale which isn't exactly what I think you're looking for. Let's take two more questions. Um, this is a, a question maybe for both of you. Um, if you take the broadest strokes and looking at even material science and our current technology, which makes multiple copies of most things, would you say that on average that the percentage of things being archived is shrinking, or is it enlarging over time? In other words, are, are we headed towards where fewer and fewer percent of everything made is being archived, or are we generally headed towards a, a world where more and more of the world is actually being archived? Um, I'll, I'll take that first. Um, first of all, there's 
just an incalculable amount more being inscribed to begin with, to being recorded. So um, in that sense, it'll always be bigger. As to how much of that, I mean, the present is just creating way more information than ever before, a sort of promiscuous amount. As to how long it is going to be preserved, I think that depends upon how well we, how good we are at preserving digital information. How long and what percentage of all, everything being made? What percentage of everything being made? Will will survive? I'm sorry, but will will survive? You, oh, I mean, obviously, there's the more is being produced, the more that's going to be captured, at least in the short term. So is the percentage of, of the stuff that's being captured growing or is it shrinking? So capturing. So I think I see a distinction here: capturing being fixated in some form or another. Um, that isn't archiving. Uh, that just means that it's been captured. So I take a picture of Abby with my phone. Uh, it's probably not going to outlast uh, my phone, or it won't outlast Google. So I think uh, never has so much been captured. Never will so little be archived. It's a good one. That's a quote there. Um, yeah, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> I will. I will. I will quote you on that. Yeah. Thank you so much for your and, time. And the, yeah, last question. Do you have any recommendations for practices that we can adopt into our lives to help build a sense of shared reality with people around us? Uh, yeah, well, I'd say the first thing is um, find some people you know whom you respect but really disagree with and get to know them and talk with them. And that, be, I mean, you know, you want to have somebody that you can respect because you want to be able to confide. You don't want to feel afraid of having a conversation with them. You don't want to feel censored by them or judged by them. Um, but you also have to listen to them as closely as you expect them to listen to you. And so if you can somehow, you don't have to reconcile your views, but if you both understand what's at stake um, in your views, why you arrive at the, at the views you have, then you will literally have a shared sense of reality. You will, um, you may not agree, but you will at least, um, at least get beyond the, that's ridiculous. How can you possibly believe that? You know, you'll understand. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Abby, for everything. Thank let's you very let's much. have a hand for Abby Smith Rumsey. In the weeks since Abby Smith Rumsey's talk, I've been thinking about her points, about how our own society here in the U.S. thinks about memory. The image of the graveyards of Soviet statues in Russia and other post-Soviet countries is an evocative one. But our own society has its own complicated relationship with its history, sometimes with literal statues too. From Smith Rumsey's talk, I got the sense that the answer is not to erase our history, but to acknowledge it and also to acknowledge how we've evolved out of it. That can be a tough task, but it feels essential to building a society that lasts for the long term. If you'd like to watch the full video of Abby Smith Rumsey's talk, learn more about her projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, or become a Long Now member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work wouldn't be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool as well as Brian Eno's January 07003 
Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to sharing more ideas about long-term thinking with you next time.